The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're taking a tentative step into the humanities. We'll pit philosophy against physics in a historic battle of titans, then examine what critical thinking looks like in the world of literature. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Mina Canales. Mina Canales currently holds the Thomas M. Sebel Chair in the History of Science at the University of Illinois, UC, and was previously an assistant and associate professor in History of Science at Harvard University. She is the author of A Tenth of a Second, A History, and also the new book, The Physicist and the Philosopher, Einstein, Bergson, and the Debate that Changed Our Understanding of Time. Himina, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me, Rochelle. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, before we get into the debate, I actually want to talk a little bit about the two players here. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of us know Albert Einstein for relativity, but I don't know that a lot of us know anything about the man himself. So can you give us a sense of who Einstein was? Einstein was a very complex person, obviously brilliant, um, super interesting. There is a big, um, we, we tend to focus on his public side, but he also had a very interesting private life. There is a mismatch frequently between how he portrayed himself to the media and what he wrote in his letters and correspondence or what the letters and correspondence reveal. We are very lucky because the collected papers of Albert Einstein have have just been published. And this is a multi-volume work there we're in volume 13 and there you can really see the man behind the science and it's completely fascinating to follow and also to see him one of the things that really intrigued me was to see him reflecting over what it means to be a public persona a a scientist who is well known who's a celebrity and to see him reflect on that is one of the things that I touch on the book because it, it you know you see a person not only struggling to be themselves to find themselves to be coherent human beings but also to reflect on their uh essential media uh self or media side so so yeah. on the the flip side, the other main character in your book is Henry Bergson. So a lot of us probably have no idea who he was. Maybe we've mm-hmm. never heard this name before. So can you give us an idea of who he was and what his uh, what his work was? So the big irony in in my my book uh, and in my work was that Bergson was indeed more famous than Einstein in the early decades of the 20th century. Bergson was known also for uh, his theory of time, his writings of time. He wrote a book in 1907 called Creative Evolution that really uh, um, gave him, made him well, famous worldwide. He was uh, read by prime ministers, by presidents. Many, many people thought that that his philosophy characterized the early decades of, of the of the 20th century. So it was amazing for me when I started doing research on the book. I obviously, like everybody, had heard about Einstein, thought that Einstein was one of the most important thinkers of this time, and didn't 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 know how important Bergson was. What I figured out was that the reason why we now know so much about Einstein and so little about Bergson was due to the debate that they had. And in a sense, it was Einstein who um, was responsible 
for putting Bergson back into oblivion because he claimed that Bergson made a mistake in a, in a book that he wrote on the theory of relativity. So this gets into uh, the the debate that arose between Einstein and Bergson and spanned uh, essentially the, the rest of their lives once it started. So maybe talk a little bit first about uh, Einstein's work and how it changed how we think about time so that we can better understand what uh, what this debate was actually about. Einstein wrote this wonderful paper in 1905 that now is seen as the beginning of a larger theory that we divide into two, the special and the, the general theory of, of relativity. And he completely revolutionized the notions of space and time. Um, first of all, by saying that space and time were, were related. The other very shocking aspect of the theory of relativity was this phenomena co- called time dilation. And that means that time dilates depending on the velocity of the person who's undergoing these temporal uh, changes or the clock. So we generally talk about time dilation using the example of the twin paradox. The twin paradox was something that fascinated uh, Bergson. And a large part of his book, Duration and Simultaneity, was concerned with refuting the twin paradox. We've all heard about the twin paradox in, 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 in high school, in our physics classes. The story as it was usually, is usually told, and this took time to be developed. And it's actually, it wasn't even Einstein who thought about the twin paradox first. It was his close colleague, Paul Langevin in 1911, who talked about, um, uh, two voyagers. He, he didn't use the, the, the term twin. But the, the central idea or the central narrative is you have two twins on Earth and one of them takes off in a spaceship, travels close to the speed of light. And for that, when that twin returns back to Earth, he can see that um, uh, time has elapsed differently for him. And he, he finds, uh, that he has aged less rapidly than his twin on earth. So suddenly we generally consider time to be absolute, to be universal, to be a single time. This is uh, a notion that was defended by many other scientists against Einstein. And Einstein says, no, actually time changes depending on how fast you're traveling relative to another observer, to another clock or to another person. So the core here is that I guess time had been seen as a kind of a universal constant and the work that Einstein did really kind of upturned that. It, It was no longer constant time. It was no longer constant. And we, we say, you know, we use the label, you know, time, time is relative, um, uh, to, to understand this effect. But so that, but that realization that the scientific uh, realization, which was completely revolutionary, completely original, was tied to many other changes in how scientists measured time and thought about, uh, the relation between the, the perceived, the instruments, um, things that we could get through the senses, things that we could measure, the relation between clocks and biological entities. So those are the themes that Bergson starts to play with in his book in order to to say uh, that, um, and this is what got him into into hot water. He, he said that one of the twins, in Einstein's 
story was fictional, that it wasn't real, and that therefore, when Albert Einstein and in the equations, the um, the equations that Einstein used from Lorentz, they were basically two times t one and t two, and he said one of those times is not real, and the relativity of time, as Einstein is explaining to us, is really the product of a metaphysical viewpoint, which is Cartesian and which equates clocks with people. He said, we shouldn't do that. We need to think about this in a more philosophical way, and we need to unpack and understand Einstein's theory. And if we do that, and his book is very difficult, and it was designed to be followed using a pen and a paper in order to go through the equations, to reach completely different conclusions from when Einstein was reaching, but always being attentive that he was not contesting any of the scientific facts, that he was not contesting any of the experimental evidence. So what really uh, surprised me too was to see that the most important scientists that worked on relativity at the same time that Einstein did, and this is the Dutch scientist Hendrik Lorentz and the French scientist Henri Poincaré and the American scientist Albert Michelson, who was known for the famous Michelson-Morley experiment that is usually listed as one of the essential experiments that proved the theory of relativity or that led to the theory of relativity. We find these three men against Einstein, siding with Bergson in his interpretation of the same facts, the same observations, the same equations. But they do not accept that the different times in these equations are real, are equally real. It's really interesting to me, this debate, because when you first glance at it, it seems to just be a strange argument between a a physicist, a sort of hard scientist, and a philosopher, and maybe sort of ideas of soft science. But uh, throughout the book, and when you read more into it, it very much touched lots of different people in lots of different ways. There were philosophers siding with Einstein, and there were, like you say, physicists siding with Bergson. So there's a lot of interesting nuance to this discussion. Absolutely. And I was completely surprised about this. And as I said, there was uh, previously no book-length account of of this debate. And in one sense, I painfully learned that a lot of people in the Einstein defenders still do not want to revive this story because they're afraid, in a sense, of what it could mean for the great accomplishments of Albert Einstein. But I was amazed when I started doing the research to find most major intellectuals of the 20th century taking sides in this debate. And we have people, uh, as I said, the scientists all mentioned them, Every, pretty much every physicist that was working and writing in the early decades of the 20th century. Henri Becquerel is another one that I hadn't mentioned so far. But also in philosophy, we have Martin Heidegger, who wrote his book Being and Time, and then later said, you know, I chose that title because I was thinking of Einstein and Bergson when when I was writing it. We have uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who's known as the founder of phenomenology, whose whole work is about recovering phenomenologically how we think, how we actually perceive things and the difference between perceiving a circle, for example, and our 
idea, our platonic idea of a circle and understanding how the human mind goes from those two. And he also wrote about, about the, the, the debate, considered it a central moment in which we have this split between the experiential, the case of Einstein and Bergson, the, the experience of time, um, but in terms, in, in the case of Merleau-Ponty, just going beyond temporality to looking about how we see things. George Herbert Mead, one of the founders of American pragmatism, wrote a lot about the different positions between the Einstein, Einstein and Bergson and tried to reconcile them. So there were complete philosophical movements that arose from this debate. It seems like at this time, uh, the, the conversation itself was about time, but there was a lot of subtext going on where it seemed like philosophy and philosophers and uh, what we would classify now maybe as the humanities were trying to comment on some of this new science and add something to it or provide a critique. And uh, in some cases, uh, the sort of quote unquote hard sciences or physicists were sort of brushing that off as in like, you're just just, you know, you're just a philosopher or something like that. It, it does feel like there is this battle brewing, or maybe it's it's a symptom of these two sides being pulled apart a, a little bit more. Because at one point, when you sort of had the gentleman scientist, you had a lot of these philosopher and physicist often in the same person. And increasingly through this era is when we're seeing a lot of these disciplines pulling apart and becoming their own separate entities. Yes, absolutely. This is, so this is a story about the professionalization of science, about the rise of the authority of science in the 20th century. We forget how recent that authority was given to, to scientists and physicists. In the 19th century, you would never have thought that the go-to person for questions about time would be a physicist. Absolutely not. They would have gone to a philosopher. The way that physics took the mantle in the figure of Einstein, and Einstein in particular, and how he became known as the genius who could comment not only on scientific experiments, not only on facts that were known, but to comment on everything from the organization of a government, from politics to literature. This spokesman for so many things in, 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 in the world came with this authority that was given to physicists that was wrested away from philosophers were this day, the April 6, 1922, proved crucial. The total disappearing of, uh, disappearance of Bergson from history is something that I still cannot wrap my head around. How is it that one of the most important philosophers is of the 20th century is basically so little known today? And to be able to tell that, that story of how he was taken out of discourse, how he was invalidated by this simple phrase that he had made a mistake, a mistake in physics of his book. And to see also how that accusation did not match with how Einstein actually thought about Bergson or wrote about Bergson in his private journal, where he did say that he thought that Bergson had, he used the word, fully grasped the essence of the theory of relativity. But then there was a concerted campaign that that was done mainly using intermediaries through correspondence, and that sometimes excerpts of this correspondence of Einstein, these letters by Einstein, were published 
by other people. But it was completely fascinating to me. You know, we tend to think about the debate between science and the humanities in these abstract terms. But to go back to the history and say, okay, well, who was involved? How did this really happen? It was fascinating for me. So、uh, you mentioned the instance or, or the meeting or the debate in April of 1922. Can you give us a little bit more information on that? Like what what happened in April of 1922? Einstein was scheduled to visit Paris in 1922, and his visit was a sensation. Everybody wanted to see him. It was extremely important. Not only because Einstein was so famous by then, he had become famous a few years before, but because of the relation between France and Germany that they were still recoiling from the conflict of the First World War, and there had been boycotts on on many、um, uh, areas where where scientists and、um, From either nation were not invited, so the fact that Einstein was going to Paris was going to France was、uh, extremely risky. One biography described described、uh, Einstein as he was going to be skating on thin ice, and even before he he arrived in Paris, Einstein was talking to his friends and asking them what he thought would happen and how would he be be received. He arrived at the gar、um, um, at the at the train station. And there were many journalists trying to snap a photo and film him, and he escaped、um, um, on the other from the other side of the of the tracks. He stayed、um, in a hotel、uh, that he he didn't tell anybody where where he was staying. So everybody was extremely、um, fascinated. And,、uh, and and thrilled. Some people thought that it was a provocative move, that it was incendiary, that it was not the right time for a German to go to France. Other people thought that he was.、Um, um, That it was an olive branch,、uh, a sign of hopefully a rapprochement between between the the two nations, and the last thing that Bergson、uh, he was very clear about this. The last thing that he wanted was to engage in a confrontation with Einstein. Bergson, it is important to to note. Really admired Einstein as a person, as a human being. He admired his politics. Bergson was head of an important. Part of the League of Nations, the Intellectual Institute for,、um, sorry, the International Institute for Intellectual Cooperation, and he invited Einstein to be part of that institute. It it was one of the most prestigious branches of the League of Nations. There was a lot of hope placed on this institute, with the the idea was that if intellectuals could. From different nations could learn to cooperate. Then eventually, that could be an entryway towards more peaceful relations amongst、uh, um, amongst nations. So, the、um, um, Bergson did not want a confrontation. He was always very clear that he wanted to divide. The criticism that he was making was specifically had to do with particular interpretations of relativity theory. It was not against relativity theory as a whole. He admired the work of his colleagues of Poincaré and Lorentz. He admired、um, uh, Michelson, who had done done this experiment. So it it was、um, a sort of unexpected、um, uh, outcome. 
um, that happened. And Einstein gave various lectures in at the Collège de, de, de France. The one where he met Einstein was at the Société Française de, de Philosophie. Bergson was was in the audience, and he was also very clear that at the moment he did not want to 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 intervene. But he was prodded to do so by the organizer of, of the meeting who said, you know, since Bergson is here, why don't we listen to him? And the, the words that um, uh, um, Bergson talked about half an hour and he explained his point of view and, and um, he explained the different ways in which one could think about, about relativity theory and the ways in which one could think more importantly about the relation between the, the observed facts and the framework that was given by, by, by Einstein. Um, and then Einstein rep- responded with a single phrase. He, he said, the time of the philosophers does not exist. And that was really sort of the salvo. Uh, where he, he claimed that there was no point, um, to talk about time philosophically. So, so I, I looked more carefully. I became intrigued by this, you know, this very bombastic sentence, uh, um, about the time of the philosophers not existing. What, what did Einstein really mean by that? So it turns out that Einstein, Asperger's, and they both understood that there were, there were, uh, there, the, the two ways of understanding time could be psychological and physical. And physical was associated with clocks and instruments of precision that measured time. And the psychological aspect of, of, of time had to do with ourselves, our sense of expectation, our, our patience, our excitement again, uh, around a certain event. That's the reason why time seems to to go a lot more slower when you're running in a treadmill, when you're doing something boring. And they, they both accepted that there were these two aspects of, of time. But for, for Einstein had a particular view of what the role of philosophy was. And Einstein said the role of, of philosophy is to look at the over, overlap between the physics and psychology. And he went on to say that his sound theory had proved that the psychological notions were mistaken. And more than that, not only were there erroneous, you know, just the assessment, of course, of a psychological notion of time will never be as accurate or precise as that given to us by a chronometer or a clock. But he also said these, my theory has proved that these are nothing but logical entities that had no concrete reality. So by, by, by saying that the psychological or psychological perception of time was, was, was really just a mental construct, um, um, in that way, he then went on to say, well, we no longer need, uh, a philosopher to talk about time. We no longer need a philosophical theory of time. And, uh, and the question about the role of philosophy, um, and, and temporality is, is something that has recently been brought up by Stephen Hawkins, before then by the late philosopher Hilary Putnam, who, who have taken a stance and said, you know, and, and, and similar to, to that of Einstein that, that say that philosophers really have nothing to say when it comes to time. So you can imagine just how incendiary this was when we find in the audience of the Société Française de Philosophie, uh, Bergson. 
So uh, since these two kind of main sections, the what we think of as hard sciences and soft science have kind mm-hmm. of pulled away from each other, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've made a lot of technological advances. And, and I don't know if that's in part because the hard sciences have gone kind of super, uh, super abstract or been mm-hmm. pursuing this kind of knowledge. But do you think that we have gained or lost something by having these two disciplines sort of pulled apart and separated into two very separate entities? that don't generally comment on each other anymore? Um, yes, uh, yes, uh, you know, uh, abs- absolutely. I, th- I think, um, you know, I tell, I, my, my book is a story about a divided century. Um, and it's, this is a very violent century. And after 1922, it didn't get any better. It got a lot worse. Um, um, Einstein was able to see a lot more than, um, than, than, than Bergson, Bergson did. But there, 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 this is a story about, about disagreement. It's a story about conflict. It's a story about miscommunication. I was very, it's one of the things in which I believe my book is, is a little different from most history books. Um, most history books assume that there, that we will that there's a coherent story. I'm very comfortable with just giving this this account of people not understanding each other, people talking past each other, and uh, and I think that that's something that it's it's part of the the, the world we live in. I'm not you know I'm 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 not uh, nostalgic or I'm not um, uh, pessim- pessimistic about completely pessimistic about the state of the world, but just because I'm a happy happy human being. Um, um, but I, but I think, I think that, um, that, that, that we can be more honest. Um, and, um, and I really strive not to take sides. I'm not defending the humanities over the sciences. I'm just giving an account of, of their split when it happened, who were the people involved? What were the issues at stake? And I think that it explains a lot, and and it explains how divided we are, even as um, individuals, in in how we compart- compartmentalize, how we think of time, uh, you know, privately, in 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 a way that is closer to the psychological time where it really is in flux and uh, and not cadenced and how we use our clocks um, how they rule us so so it is it is in a sense um, it is in a sense a meditation of this of this this split I, I don't want to give it you know I'm, I'm I'm hesitant to to give a value judgment but it's there and uh, and this is the story of how it came to be and these are the people involved in it Himina, thanks so much for being here. It's a really fascinating book, and I think thank you. I think reading it uh, and looking at the history of, like you say, people talking past each other, people never entirely talking to each other or grappling with each other's ideas, just uh, <laughs> trying to kind of not defend themselves, but really um, uh, talking in so many different layers, and uh, it it makes me think about and as I see debates happening in present day, I think about mm-hmm. them in a slightly different way than I think I did before. And I, I try to notice where some of those, those talking past each other moments are happening. 
Good, and I hope our, our interview is not an example of that, <laughs> where we actually are having a coherent a coherent conversation. Thank you very much. Total Thank pleasure. you very much. Uh, and if you want to learn okay. more about Humina, her work, or her book, The Physicist and the Philosopher, Einstein, Bergson, and the Debate that Changed Our Understanding of Time, uh, we've put links in our show notes to get you started, and you can find those show notes at our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we'll talk with two scholars about what critical thinking and analysis looks like when it's applied to literature. Stay tuned. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, Join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me are Hannah McGregor and Marcel Kosman, the scholarly hosts of the podcast Which Please, a fortnightly podcast analyzing the Harry Potter series one book at a time. Hannah holds a PhD in English literature. Hello, Hannah. Hello. And Marcel Kosman is a PhD candidate in the same field. Hello, Marcel. Hello. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're delighted to be talking to you. So before we dive into literary analysis and literary criticism, just maybe give people a quick summary of why you guys created this podcast uh, and why maybe you wanted to talk about Harry Potter in particular. We first started this project um, because we wanted to reread the Harry Potter series and we wanted to reread it together. Hannah actually realized that um, she had never reread it. And then as we were going, realized that she had actually not read all of the books. Um, and I have reread it several times, but had never really reread it alongside a friend. And so I never, you, Harry Potter just gives some of us all these feelings. And it's really hard <laughs> to have those feelings and not have someone to talk to. We thought that making a podcast would be a really fun kind of activity. Um, and so this is what Hannah referred to as a friendship project. So it was a way for us to uh, take time out of our busy schedules, get together, do something fun, drink some wine, um, eat some chips, mm -hmm. and uh, have really in-depth conversations about our feelings and literature and Harry Potter. So for people who aren't familiar with uh, your guys's background, can you talk a little bit about um, what a, a PhD in English literature means? I guess it, it depends a lot on the institution where you're studying because different institutions have different requirements. Um, but across the board, the main thing is that you have to um, choose a handful of fields that apply or that relate to the project that you're interested in. And then you have to become a kind of expert in those fields before you then basically write a book length project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, within the discipline of English, there are hugely varying approaches to what we think counts as literary criticism. So um, were you if you were to sit down a different pair of literary scholars and ask them what constitutes getting a PhD in English, they would say maybe something very different from us. They might say that it means um, reading all of the great canonical works of English literature and being ready to 
quote from Shakespeare or from Chaucer or from Virginia Woolf, um, being able to teach broad survey courses. Um, we both come from very different uh, schools of thought in mm-hmm. in literature. Um, both of us are Canadianists. And so um, both of us have been trained really more to take seriously the kinds of literature and culture that the people around us are reading and consuming. So really what we're engaged in is trying to understand um, what people read and more generally what people, you know, watch and listen to and care about um, and what those things mean and why they matter to us so much. Mm-hmm. What Maybe we should start with what is literary analysis and literary criticism? Mm-hmm. That's, <clears throat> that is a great question. Yeah. That's um, Okay. <laughs> I'm going to start with an analogy that I used for my class full of engineers uh, right at the end of our last semester. Um, we had, uh, we'd been talking about um, a great, I think slate article about the new star Wars movie. Um, and they, some of them responded to that article with some resistance. They said, why can't a movie just be a movie? Why does it have to mean something? Why do you have to be critical about this? Can it just be a fun story about lightsabers? And I said, every day on my way to work, I bike across the high-level bridge. Um, I don't know how that bridge was made. I don't understand the principles behind the engineering that makes that bridge stay up. Um, but I, I believe that those principles exist. I'm willing to recognize that despite my lack of understanding of them, um, there are actually principles behind what makes a bridge stand up Mm -hmm. and it's the job of engineers to understand those principles and be able to enact them. Uh, So our job is similar, right? We, we are the people whose job it is to understand the principles upon which a literary text functions. What makes it work? How does the language work? What do readers make out of texts? Um, what's the role of literature in society and history? Uh, what are the politics of different kinds of stories? Mm-hmm. It's our job to try to understand, you know, the kind of scaffolding yeah. underneath those things. That's a really great analogy because different people are going to use bridges in different ways. Some people are only going to cross that bridge once because they're just going from one place to another. They're going to be like, I hate that bridge. Some people are afraid of bridges. For some Um, people, bridges are a way to escape. And for some people, literature is a way to escape. And they don't want to have to think about it. And that's fine. But it's our job to think about it. That's a really interesting way to describe it. I, I totally agree. I never really thought about it like that before, but it does, uh, it does kind of remind you that there is intent when somebody writes a text or writes a piece mm. of literature mm-hmm. that, uh, there is an intent and then it, a lot of the pieces that they put in there, you don't necessarily see from a distance or see until you kind of go up really close and investigate some of the details. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's especially true because I, when I was a teenager, I used to be under the impression that things like poetry and stories sort of came from deep within you, that there was no, that there needn't be some kind of craft behind them, that like, you just had to feel something strongly enough in order to write it. <laughs> so you're strongly influenced by Wordsworth, huh? Who? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Sorry. That was a poetry joke. You're all welcome. <laughs> you're all welcome. But then... <laughs> It wasn't until I was in university that I started to, um, and, and studying English literature, um, at the time just for fun. I didn't 
become a major in it right away, um, that I came to learn that actually you have to practice writing. Writing isn't something that you can just wake up in the night full of feelings and like put down a poem. You have to write it and you re- revisit it, scratch out a bunch of words, write it again. I'm not, I'm not a creative writer, but lots of people are, um, <laughs> especially lots of teenagers. And poetry is a really great way to express feelings when you have really big, complicated feelings. Poetry is super, <laughs> super effective for that. But anyway, um, the point is that when, when stories... And when poems, when songs, all of those things, when they're written, they're not just written from the heart. They may start that way, but there is intention behind them. There is craft that goes into them. There is a kind of structure. Um, there's work. They, they're mm-hmm. work. Yeah. 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 The other important, this is Hannah again, in case, like me, you have trouble telling our voices apart. <laughs> um, uh, the other important thing is that... Um, the language that writers draw on is a shared set of cultural vocabularies, right? We tend to, within the field of literary criticism, refer, we refer to that as discourse. Um, it's the, the kinds of shared, set, shared sets of ideas and images and references that we have that writers are constantly drawing on in order to make things meaningful, right? The sort of archetypes that make you know who the hero in the story is and know who the villain is and, and be able to sort of read between the lines and figure out what's going on. Um, and those archetypes and tropes and, and images and vocabularies, um, they come from somewhere. They have histories. Uh, they're not neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, as our beloved Canadian poet Dion Brand said, no language is neutral. Mm-hmm. Language has very deep, complex histories. Um, and sometimes those are histories that the authors themselves are not consciously engaging in. Um, so it's really important to think about the work, the intention that goes into a literary text. But it's equally important to understand that the author's intention isn't the beginning and ending of the text meaning because they're drawing on shared vocabularies that they might not even be thinking about, but that are still meaningful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're reading a, a text, what are we actually trying to interpret? I remember hearing someone say once when I asked them this, that uh, a lot of literary analysis or, or criticism was l- sometimes less about content and more about form. Does that make any sense? Form matters to you more or less depending on your methodology. That's true. Right? Okay. We use there are so many different methodologies. Um, and by methodology, what I mean is um, the particular set of things that you care about when you come to a text, um, what you're looking for, what you're thinking about, right? Um, just the way, the same way that sort of people coming from, uh, you know, different disciplines within the sciences are also going to look at the same object in different ways because they're thinking about, you know, what makes it tick in different ways. Um, <clears throat> a geologist and an engineer are going to care about, you know, ores in very different ways. That's right. Ores. All of my knowledge of science comes from settlers of Catan. You're welcome. <laughs> um, uh, so in the same way, we have uh, just a huge variety of different methodologies that we use mm-hmm. in literary criticism. Um, and so some people might really care about form, right? Mm-hmm. So they might be looking at poetry and be thinking about 
line breaks and metaphor and simile and literary allusions and all of these other very formal things. Um, we are not really form formal critics. No, no. I mean, when, whenever I'm working with poetry or teaching poetry, I'm really into form. And I think form is so important and so key to understanding how the text speaks to me. But when I'm reading a novel, eh, I don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It depends. So, so the lenses that we tend to bring to bear on our readings, our sort of critical methodologies are often very political, mm-hmm. right? We're often thinking about the politics of the text, the politics of the language that the text uses, um, the kinds of, and this is, again, we use the term discourse a lot, the kinds of discourses that the text engages in, um, whether it's doing so consciously or not, um, because we're not very interested in whether the author meant to do it or not. Mm-hmm. You notice that I'm talking about what the text is doing, not what the author is doing. It's because we tend to focus on what's actually happening there on the page less than what, you know, JK Rowling meant when she wrote Harry Potter, right? Mm-hmm. We don't really care how many times JK Rowling comes along and, and corrects her version of events. We care about what's written there on the page. Yeah. A lot of times when people talk about, or at least have talked to me about a literary analysis, uh, they get really, people especially who maybe aren't big on the topic or kind of poo-poo the topic, they they always struggle with, it seems like there's no right or wrong answer, that the, the answer could be anything that you, you decide to argue. So how do you guys respond to something like that? Is there a right answer when you're talking about literary analysis? I would say that there are rarely objectively right answers, but there are for sure objectively wrong answers. Yeah. Like you can misunderstand a text. My favorite example is the Robert Frost poem about the two roads in the woods and sorry, you can't follow both. So blah, 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 blah. The road less traveled. That, yeah. Is that the name of it? Who knows? I don't know. Anyway, thank goodness for Orange is the New Black. Um, where the character Piper actually explains to the universe that like everybody misreads that poem. And it's true. Everybody thinks that everybody kind of skips most of the poem. They start with the beginning where he's like, yeah, there are two roads that split apart in the woods and I couldn't take both. And then at the end they read and uh, sorry, I couldn't travel both. I took the one less traveled by and it's made all the and difference. That's made all the difference. Yeah. And that's not what the, that's not what the, everybody misses the part of the poem where he's like, so Maybe someday I'll be at a party and I'm going to like tell everyone that I took the one that wasn't traveled by as much and that it made all the difference. But like, really, it didn't, it didn't change anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you, yeah. so it really so, sort of the real poem kind of means the opposite of what exactly. it says on the inspirational posters we all saw in high school. Exactly. Precisely. Yeah. And people use that quote all the time, like, take the road less traveled by. It was like, no, it doesn't actually make a difference. That's the point of the poem. And it's not that my reading is better. It's that my reading is based on the actual poem, <laughs> based on the words in the poem. Yeah. 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 So this, the, the ambiguity of literature is something that people really, that, that people, all of our students, right, who are learning how to read literature critically struggle with this idea of its ambiguity, particularly people who are in the sciences and think of themselves as, um, people who like right and wrong answers. Um, and I, I tend to tell them two things. I tell them, one, science isn't nearly as objective and straightforward as you think it is. Oh, um, you're getting taught a really simplified version of it. Um, it's actually, you know, in, full of uh, speculation and postulation and 
theories and perhapses um, and the best version of, you know, this is as correct as we can get it based on the evidence we have. And it's also motivated by biases as well, right? Sure is. Um, But the other thing is that literature is not quite as ambiguous as you would have it, as you would, yeah, as you might believe. Um, The beautiful thing that reading literature teaches us to do is to differentiate not between, um, and I'm paraphrasing something I read and I can't remember where I read it, but it stuck with me. Uh, It teaches us to paraphrase not between true and false, but between possible and impossible. Mm -hmm. So there are a variety of possible readings. um, And those, the reading that you select is going to be informed by a lot of things, but there are also impossible readings. There are things that the text can't mean. Um, and so, and it's really, it's actually a really useful form of critical thinking to learn to differentiate not between the true and the false, because life is a lot more complicated than one right answer Mm -hmm. and one wrong answer, but to, to differentiate between a set of possible outcomes and a set of impossible outcomes, and then having narrowed yourself down to the set of possible outcomes to then select amongst them based on the one that you think is best based on the evidence you have available to you. And that's what we're doing constantly when we produce readings. It's, it occurs to me that part of this as well is to some extent you can't, um, and with a lot of sciences and, and mathematics, quite often you, you start trying to learn about a, an unknown thing by sort of isolating it out as much as possible and, and getting it kind of on its own and seeing how just that little tiny piece of thing works. Um, but is that even possible to do with literature? It feels like to, to try and, and understand a piece of literature, you really have to wrestle with it in context sort of in situ. Yeah, I think, I mean, there are different critical approaches that just focus on the text itself. We sort of pretend to do one with our podcast. We kind of pretend that we're not doing research, but the thing is that we've done research before. So we can't, we can't isolate the text from our prior experiences. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, I think maybe that's probably the biggest difference between, mm-hmm. um, between tackling and isolating a piece of literature and tackling, tackling and isolating um, a scientific query. Like we can't undo the knowledge that we already have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though again, as Marcel astutely pointed out, scientists also come with a ton of biases and we know this, mm-hmm. we know that when you look back at studies that have been done historically, you can watch the way in which scientific bias has influenced um the studies that are done and the studies that are not done, you know, for example, um, looking for racial explanations behind um, various uh, lifespans in the U S when the explanations are in fact um, class based Mm -hmm. and it's the ways in which race and class overlap that is causing there to be a correlation between race and lifespan, but no causation. Mm -hmm. Right. But because of the, the way in which, right. We, we know, just in case your listeners don't know, that race is an invented biological category. It doesn't actually have a biological basis. But the long-term assumption that it did have a biological basis resulted in a lot of crazy science, like mm-hmm. phrenology. Um, right? And so I'd say, realistically, science isn't really isolating things out from the complex, messy rest of the world. Um 
despite maybe a desire to do so. Um, but you're right. We are a big piece of what we do as literary critics is try to understand the role that literature plays in relation to a whole lot of other moving parts like history and politics and class and race and gender and the environment and the forms of energy that we use, <laughs> like just trying, just trying to figure out how all of these things fit together in very messy, complicated ways. So uh, when we're talking about our reactions to TV shows or whether we like a character or hate a character or not with our friends or coworkers the next day uh, around a coffee, are we engaging in sort of a layperson's version of literary criticism to some degree? Oh, absolutely. We, we at Which Please believe firmly that fan theories and fan reactions are basically the same thing as literary criticism. It's just that literary criticism is done by quote unquote scholars and fan theories and fan reactions are done by quote unquote fans. Mm -hmm. um, so we see these things as being fundamentally the same. Um, but again, there, there are some yeah. scholars of literature who would disagree heavily with us. <laughs> For example, um, I am a big game of Thrones fan. Please don't spoil this season. I haven't seen it. I yet. will spoil nothing for you because this is, you watched, oh, okay. I won't, I'm not going to spoil absolutely anything. I'm going to say in some episode, in some season, who knows when, there was some blood somewhere. That's not a, that's not a Game of Thrones spoiler. I can't that's, believe you It's would a do really this. bloody show. Um, but there were all of these, there was this blood and people were, um, like screen capping the image of this blood and then like producing interpretations of the blood spatter and whether or not it was significant or meaningful and trying to talk about like, Oh, it kind of looks like this thing. Oh, I think it looks like this thing. And that like TV shows that people care about, they get so deep into interpretation mm. of those shows. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, the same thing with movies. Like, is there, I'm not sure if you could find a community of interpretation more deeply invested in thinking through like every piece of minutia as the star Wars community, mm -hmm. like people. Yeah. Oh man. People. <laughs> I listened to a two hour podcast discussing the four minute trailer for the force awakens. Yeah. The force awakens. awakens. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing how detailed fans get in their interpretations. Mm -hmm. I'd say the really significant um, difference between fan communities and fan interpretations and the kinds of scholarship that we do is that um, we really encourage some level of resistance to your knee-jerk reactions to things, mm -hmm. right? And so... Um, it's really important for us, for example, that you think twice about um, the gendered politics of a text or the mm -hmm. racialized politics of a text, um, that we maybe stop and look at the way that goblins are represented in Harry Potter and not just think about how you feel about the houses and how you feel about the characters, but also think like, oh, hey, the language being used to describe goblins sounds an awful lot <laughs> like the language used historically to describe Jewish people. <laughs> um, and that's maybe significant and that's not necessarily something fans would come up with. Um, but it, yeah. it results from the same kind of close engagement with a text that we think matters. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, very few people would argue about the value of science and math and engineering and computing or suggest that those <laughs> subjects uh, weren't important to teach. But I think more people might argue that a lot of what students do in an English class or a drama class or an art class isn't worthwhile or valuable and that it's maybe a, a waste of time that could be spent doing more math or more science. Um, how would you respond to those types of comments? <laughs> well, Sorry. you could look at literally any presidential campaign <laughs> and like the inability to critically engage with messages. If it wasn't important to learn how to interpret messages, then then political campaigns wouldn't be a thing, right? Then there would then there would just be like one nominee. You wouldn't have American presidential primaries that go on for like what, like a year and a half, four half, decades, four decades. I'm exhausted um, already. Yeah, yeah. Like Twitter wouldn't be a thing. The ways in which we interpret texts is so central to um, the ways in which we are able to spread information to. Uh, rally people behind causes, like all of these things, like that's the exact same thing mm -hmm. as reading a poem or reading a novel and understanding what it means, right? When you make an attack ad and you list a whole bunch of things that your political opponent has said that are scary, what you're doing is you're taking that information and you are presenting it to your public and saying, this is what this person says, this is what these things mean. Um, so it is, it's super important. Mm -hmm. it is, is it as important as science and math? Probably because we're all people who live in worlds filled with text and filled with words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was just thinking about how, when I was in high school, my, I had a big fight with my mom about not taking math past grade 12. We had, we had grade 13, um, when I was in high school and so did Hannah, but mm -hmm. anyway, um, and I was thinking about how, like, you don't get those arguments with people who are like, I don't want to take drama. No, no parent is going to be like, you might need that later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you're, you use your textual interpretation skills on a daily basis, a hell of a lot more than you use long division. Mm -hmm. Like when's the last time I did long division? Well, surprisingly recently, but I was in an escape room. Um, <laughs> and it was pertinent at the moment. I was really happy to remember <laughs> bed mass and my order of operations because it's actually critical to solving a clue. But we are confronted with text on a daily basis and we're confronted with text that we need to interpret mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, politics and choosing who you're going to vote for is, is the sort of ready to hand example, but we need to like, it is our job to decide who represents us mm -hmm. within our country and on a global stage. And so we need to have well-informed opinions about a lot of really big things and the way that we you know like i can't be the person who is doing every scientific study but i need to be able to read the conclusions people have come to and have an opinion about climate change mm -hmm. that is still well-informed despite the fact that i'm not a climate change scientist and i do that because i know how to read texts. I know how to understand how language works to understand how somebody is trying to persuade me um, and how much of their argument is based in evidence and how much isn't. Mm -hmm. You learn all of that stuff by learning how to read carefully and critically. Um, and I would say a culture without people who know how to read carefully and critically um, is very, very scary mm -hmm. as you will find by looking at Twitter 
or the comment section on a YouTube video for any amount of time. Mm -hmm. You will see what happens when people don't think critically about text. And it's actually really frightening. So just before we we leave is if someone is interested in turning their brain on or up while engaging in pop culture or or while reading, where should they start? Do you have some like 101 tips for the armchair literature critic? I'd say read, read some stuff, right? Like there's a lot of really great examples of um, sort of more casual lay criticism happening on sites like um, the Toast is a great mm-hmm. place to go. Um, Hairpin mm-hmm. is a great place to go. Um, I sometimes like stuff on Slate, though you need to, to sort of filter. Um, yeah. But going and, you know, saying, okay, I really like... Um, you know, I really like Game of Thrones. And so I'm going to go read like four or five different smart people's opinions about this new episode and start to get a sense of like what people are talking about, what people think matters, what kinds of conversations are going on. Um, you know, it's a way to get introduced into the vocabulary of concerns, you know, how people mm-hmm. talk about representations of gendered violence, for example. Um without getting sort of overwhelmed by the kinds of critical vocabulary that, you know, professional literary critics use. Yeah. And I would say similarly, um, in wanting to, to branch out, I would also encourage listeners to pay attention to who it is writing the articles. Right. So like, I think it's really, I think it's really easy to go through life only reading opinions that are similar to yours. And the way to open yourself up to new ideas and new approaches is to specifically look at underrepresented voices. So specifically seeking out queer interpretations. Um, uh, if you are really interested in what Beyonce's new album means, read pieces written by black women. Um, read those first. There are some smart things that are being written by white men about it. I read one and was like, that's interesting, but not interesting enough. <laughs> um, I could have come to those ideas on my own. Thanks. Yeah. 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 I had a, a student in a recent class who was, you know, we are introducing the class to feminism and, and he, he's a writer himself and he felt really sort of surprised to realize I'm revisiting some of his own writing that it was so sort of saturated in the same kinds of old patriarchal tropes mm-hmm. we've been looking at. And he was like, you know, I never, I never thought I was using these things. How did this happen? Um, I was like, how many authors who aren't white men do you read? He was like, ah, none. Yeah. It's like, cool. That's a great place to start. Go read some other voices, go expose yourself to things that you wouldn't normally choose that maybe make you a little uncomfortable or challenge your assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really great place to start. And then when those things make you uncomfortable, which they will sit with that discomfort for a while, just be uncomfortable, be challenged, be threatened, be freaked out, and then just go ahead and let that feeling linger because that's a really <laughs> good starting point for critical thought is uh is discomfort mm-hmm. 
And on that note, uh, Hannah and Marcel, thank you so much for being here. Really uh, fascinating podcast. And I highly recommend that everybody check it out, especially if you love Harry Potter, which I'm sure many of you do. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having us. This is a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. It was a delightful conversation. And if you want to learn more about Hannah, Marcel, or their podcast, Witch Please, we have links available on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.